Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. He konai purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At the Movies, teenage Spider-Man is getting along fine until he discovers he's only one of many. Wait, 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 hold on. There's an elite society with all the best spider people in it? Okay, so there's this lady, Jess Drew. She rides a motorcycle. Oh my gosh, I'm learning so much from her. An elderly Englishman tries to fix things by going on a long walk. Could I leave a message for Queenie Hennessy? Tell her Harold Fry is on his way. I'll keep walking and she must keep living. Harold! And a young family inherit a remote cottage, only to discover they already have company. What else I found? Harold. Where did you find this? It was in the mud, in the tank. What do you think it is? Last week on the Sunday Afternoon Show, I interviewed Stevie Taylor. She's just completed a master's thesis on how New Zealand audiences' viewing habits have changed since the start of the COVID pandemic. It's fascinating reading and confirms a few trends that we perceive anecdotally, but that may turn out to be statistically significant. The first conclusion is that film-loving audiences came back to cinemas after the lockdowns but not for everything that they might have gone to see beforehand. Audiences still love big-screen entertainment, but they're being picky these days. The streaming services definitely benefited from the closure of cinemas, and many audiences have decided that being at home isn't such a bad deal, especially when there's a cost-of-living crisis. The decision to spend 20 or 30 bucks per person, when you include popcorn and parking, is for many people reserved only for the biggest movies. And luckily we have a few of those lined up this year. And distributors are also wary about this new uncertainty. A theatrical release is expensive, and we're still seeing, on average, half of the number of films released to cinemas every week than we did in 2019. Seasons are shorter too. Some beneficiaries of this trend are the many film festivals we have in New Zealand. The French Film Festival is on its way around the country at the moment, featuring an excellent selection of crowd-pleasing commercial Gallic cinema. It's a great way for distributors to trial a film. Good audience word of mouth might justify a return season. But for the most part, this is going to be your only chance to see some petty gems with an audience. You might think the streaming services would be happy at this state of affairs, but you couldn't be more wrong. A recent article in New York magazine revealed the deep malaise at the heart of the streaming business. If you're not called Netflix, you are probably hemorrhaging money. And if you are called Netflix, your stock price is in the toilet anyway. 
Streamers have spent hundreds of billions of dollars on content, failing to pay writers, directors and most actors what they're worth, and they still can't make money. Warner Brothers famously dumped the $90 million movie Batgirl from their schedules before anyone could see it because a tax write-off was better value. The fact that the writers are on strike right now might actually play into the big studio's hands. Most audiences don't realise how much content there is online that they haven't seen yet. The back catalogue, the long tail, might get a workout after all. But it seems clear that film lovers are heading into choppy waters. The old ways of financing and distributing movies and television are no longer valid, but the new ways aren't working either. This week, we present the best of some lean pickings at the local box office and reflect on the fact that the only way we can guarantee that cinemas will still have a decent variety of flicks to choose from is to continue to buy our tickets. Do I uh, have web on my face? What's the deal? Miles! He's right there! He's right there! Turn around! I don't see anything, boss. guess he died 21 years ago sam raimi invented the 21st century superhero movie with spider-man starring toby Maguire. i recall enjoying it at the time for the most part but feeling very disconcerted about the way the aerial scenes of spidey web slinging himself around manhattan actually looked i was old-fashioned enough even then to think that the camera even if there's no such thing as a camera in a digitally created image like that, that the camera should be in a position that is vaguely physically plausible. In Raimi's Spider-Man, the camera swooped around the skies as much as Spider-Man himself, beautiful arcs through the spaces between the buildings or across elevated train tracks. But I struggled with the lack of an anchor point, a point of view. I felt a little bit motion sick, to be honest, especially if I was sitting too close to the screen. I couldn't have imagined how 21 years on the world would have changed. Compared with Joaquim Dos Santos, Kemp Powers and Justin K. Thompson's Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Raimi's version feels as sedate as the Strauss Waltz sequence in 2001. I don't know if I'd call it the best movie of the year, but I would definitely describe it as the most movie of the year. So much is going on in every frame and in every bit of overlapping, wisecracking dialogue. It's fun, but exhausting. Huh? Miles? Hey, who's the new guy? I'm sorry. Who are you? I'm glad you asked, new guy. My name is Pravitra Prabhakar. I live in Mumbai. This is where the traffic is. This is also where the traffic is. There's traffic here, too. Being Spider-Man is so easy. I fight a few bad guys. Quick break for chai with my my auntie. I love chai tea. What did you just say? Chai tea? Chai means tea. You're saying tea tea. 
five years ago in Into the Spider-Verse, we were introduced to Brooklyn teenager Miles Morales, voiced by Shamik Moore, bitten by a radioactive spider and given strange powers. Great power and great responsibility and all that. By the end of that film, Miles and the audience were aware of the infinite number of universes and the infinite number of pitfalls they present. But the machine that allowed for travel between them had been destroyed, and now Miles' only problem is keeping his superhero status secret from his doting parents. In the new film, Across the Spider-Verse, we open on a different version of Spider-Man, known in the comics as Spider-Gwen, with the voice of Hailey Steinfeld. Gwen Stacy, Peter Parker's girlfriend in most of the stories, has been bitten by her own radioactive spider and been given all the powers. Racked with guilt after failing to save the mortal Peter Parker in her universe and struggling with that annoying inability to tell her father the truth of her identity, she takes up an offer to leave her universe and join the Universe Cops, all versions of Spider-Man dedicated to preserving the fabric of the multiverse. But being as youthfully impetuous as almost all the other Spideys, she stops off to meet Miles in his universe and thus set the wheels of plot in motion. Wait, 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 hold on. There's an elite society with all the best spider people in it? Okay, so there's this lady, Jess Drew. She rides a motorcycle. Oh my gosh, I'm learning so much from her. Oh yeah, I've learned a lot of stuff too. I've leveled up my whole thing. Oh yeah? Let's see that. Let's go. Thread the needle. And Miguel, the whole thing was his idea. And who's Miguel? Oh, he's like a ninja vampire Spider-Man, but a good guy. A vampire good guy. I'd pay good money to see that. So how long ago did they invite you? Uh, it's only like a few months ago. A month is kind of a long time, isn't it? Okay, this one counts for two. All of my feels were already dead. And if I could rewind it, if you could rewind Look at me. Because all the elements come at you at such a rate of knots, it isn't always easy to put all the pieces of plot together to make a coherent whole. In fact, many of the most important bits of information arrive near the end of this film so that they can be used to set up the final film in the trilogy beyond the Spider-Verse, which we shouldn't have to wait another five years for. If it does, I really will need Wikipedia if I have to wait that long. The strongest story thread, even though I didn't think so while I was watching it, is the story of Miles coming out as a 15-year-old Spider-Man to his loving parents, Luna Lauren Velez and Brian Tyree Henry. If he could simply own up to all that has happened and trust their understanding, well, there wouldn't be much of a film left behind. Okay, Miles' grades are pretty good. A in AP Physics. That's my little man. And AP Studio Art. <laughs> he takes after his uncle. A minus in English. She's a tough grader. And a B in Spanish. What? Ooh, okay. M Miles. Are you trying to tell your mother? mami. Eso no es my fault. ¿Qué es eso que esto no es mi fault? ¿Tú estás tomando una clase en español? I just missed a few classes. Oh, just a few classes. Well, what's a few? I mean, you know, like five. Five? five. Actually six. You're dead. But he can't. 
and doesn't, and the resulting pickle he finds himself in requires the intervention of many exquisitely designed and animated Spider-Men. The boundaries of commercial animation are pushed in directions that we have never seen before, and there are more visual and auditory gags per minute than a Hollywood movie has ever contained. Across the Spider-Verse suffers from a villain, the Spot, voiced by Wes Anderson regular Jason Schwartzman, who is unmemorable apart from his ability to create the holes between universes required for the plot, and a grumpy antagonist played by Oscar Isaac, whose backstory we won't learn until the next film. The kids I was watching with didn't seem too bothered, and if I watch it again, I'll make sure to just go along for the ride next time, rather than worrying about what the dickens is going on. You and me, it's... We're the same. In the important ways, you know. In every other universe, Gwen Stacy falls for Spider-Man. And in every other universe, it doesn't end well. Well, it's the first time for everything, right? Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is rated PG for violence and coarse language and it is playing all over the Motu now. Uh, could I leave a message for Queenie Hennessy? Tell her Harold Fry is on his way. I'll keep walking and she must keep living. Harold! I'm walking a long way but I haven't quite got the hang of it yet. Harold Fry, as played by the great Jim Broadbent, is a quintessential English middle-class retiree. He lives with his wife, Maureen, played by Penelope Wilton, in a not terribly picturesque suburban street in a very beautiful part of the southwest, Kingsbridge in Devon. Life is all about mowing the lawn, chatting affably to the neighbours, going to the corner shop, having tea at tea time, and apparently living a life so consumed with regret that you barely know yourself. Harold receives a letter from an old work colleague who he hasn't heard from for a while. Queenie Hennessy worked with him at the brewery he represented. An average sort of job, I suppose, but the choice of the alcohol trade is an interesting one as he seems not to care for it now. Queenie is unwell in Berwick-upon-Tweed, which is about as far away from Kingsbridge as you can get and still just be in England. She's in a hospice, in fact, and is saying goodbye. Not really knowing what to do with this news, Harold writes a slightly pathetic note in reply and heads to the postbox to send it. But he knows he hasn't done this right. Maybe there's more about his friendship with Queenie that needs to be attended to. Maybe he should do something about it. When somehow even the post office itself doesn't seem like the right place to post his letter, Harold meets a young woman working in a service station who gives him some advice. Who do we know in Berwick-upon-Tweed? We don't. It's from Queenie Hennessy. She's in a hospice. Is that a letter? For a friend. She has cancer. My aunt had cancer. But you can't give up. 
It's about what's in here. And your aunt got better because you believe she could? She said it gave her hope. Completely ill-equipped emotionally and physically, Harold begins walking in the hope that her hope to see him again will keep her alive. Apple Maps tells me that the distance is 740 kilometres, with a considerable amount of that uphill. And Apple Maps tells me that you can walk it in nearly seven days, but that's misleading because they assume you are going 24 hours a day and also that you are not a pensioner like Harold. In the book this film is based on, it takes him 87 days. This is now a road movie, which means Harold will come into contact with strangers who will change his life, and some whose life he will change. There's the young homeless man who decides to travel with Harold on his pilgrimage, and you realise that sometimes the hopeless among us don't need hope for themselves, they need to experience hope for others in order to see the possibility of change. Where are you? I'm going to save Queenie Hennessy. Have you been drinking? The only time you walk is to get to the car. I need to do this, Maureen. Walk to Berwick-upon-Tweed. It can only be about 500 miles. Have you seen the news? You're everywhere. Everyone's so nice. I have a spare room. You can stay the night. Thank you. I'm going to save Queenie too. A BAFTA and Oscar winner for supporting actor, Broadbent doesn't often get a lead role as meaty as this, and he really is at his finest. Vulnerable but determined, vague about his purpose, but knowing that doing nothing is not an option any longer. He's supported by Penelope Wilton, whose character is less sympathetic, especially a revelation we get later on that I believe is one of the few diversions that screenwriter Rachel Joyce makes from her own 2012 novel. The direction by Hetty MacDonald is first-rate, supported by very fine cinematography from Kate McCullough, who photographed the extraordinary Irish film The Quiet Girl last year. This is only Hetty MacDonald's second theatrical feature film. The last was in 1996, would you believe? But she's been making terrific television since then, including directing all the episodes of Normal People in 2020. What he's doing, it's beautiful. I wish you'd come home. You could do this too. Anyone can do what I'm doing. You just have to let go of the things you think you need. I've spent my life not doing anything. And now at last I am. Don't you get scared? Since I've been in the open, it seems it's best to be afraid of. I couldn't help comparing this film with another recent movie about loneliness, ageing and grief, the Tom Hanks vehicle A Man Called Otto. Otto ended up using sentimentality to produce a satisfying conclusion, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Harold Fry chooses sincerity. Not all of the story works, or at least it didn't for me, but the emotional beats I found very moving indeed. Fry's physical and mental deterioration on the journey give us something very real to care about. Evidently the film was shot in story and pilgrimage order, allowing Broadbent to dishevel as it goes on. I recommend The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry and won't be too surprised if he picks up a Best Actor BAFTA to go along with the supporting actor one from over 20 years ago. I want to come home. I want my son. You're 
nearly there. 18 miles. That's nothing. Travel the length of England to save a woman from dying. Maybe it's what the world needs right now. A little less sense and a bit more faith. The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry is rated M for offensive language, drug use, sexual references and suicide. It's playing in select cinemas across New Zealand now. Mom, I think Reggie's eating his brother. Your turn. I did the puppy. I did the rat. You did not. Oh, Reggie, you bad axolotl. You. Oh. There's a lizard's arms and legs. I'm guessing inside Reggie, sweetie. Oh, that's gross. He's not a lizard. He's an amphibian like some of the oldest, baddest dinosaurs. Why did he do that? Hungry, territorial, or the water change. They can be sensitive because they breathe through their skin. Look. This are slimy. <laughs> you know, if we took him out of the water, he would turn into a salamander and hunt on land. What would he hunt? I don't know. Anything that moves. <laughs> <laughs> Finally in the programme, another film that relies almost entirely on the screen chemistry of its two leads, as well as the late arrival of a pretty effective slithery monster. In the tank, Matt Whelan and Luciani Buchanan play a couple struggling to make a go of their popular California pet store. He's in grad school and refurbishing their apartment in his spare time. She runs the business and appears to be the brains of the outfit when it comes to the animals. A lawyer with an unfeasible moustache turns up unexpectedly. Evidently, when Whelan's mother died in a mental hospital, she didn't know, or didn't want anyone else to know, that she owned a run-down cottage on a picturesque stretch of Oregon coastline. This news could be the answer to their prayers. A home for their family, including daughter Raya, Zara Nausbaum, in an idyllic bit of the old nature... Or it could just be an instant capital gain. Um, you said something about my mother's files? Yeah, I, I didn't know your mother, and uh, everything in the file appears to be in order. There was, however, an old deed I came across empty in some boxes being filed incorrectly. It's for a coastal property in Oregon. Oh, my mother never had property anywhere. Mm. Certainly not up there. Well, it's from 1935 in your father's name. He bought land on the Oregon coast at the end of the Depression. A little place called Hobbit's Bay. Ever heard of it? How did something like this get overlooked for so long? Well, it was before our firm's time, and, well, we had no record on file of the mother ever owning it, but it would have passed on to her. Looks like it got forgotten after your father's death. The film is set in 1978, and it has to be, because we need the family to be cut off from the outside world. No mobile phones, no internet, uh, and in this case, no power or running water. They are off the grid, and the fresh water for the house is supposed to be stored in a large underground tank, so large it reaches under the house and is actually fed not by rainwater from the roof, but from a local bore. When Whelan climbs down to open the valve, sure enough, fresh water starts pouring into the tank, but only brown and then thick black liquid emerges from the taps in the house. He's also managed to wake up some of the local wildlife. 
wildlife that doesn't take kindly to humans on their territory, and wildlife who may have had something to do with the disappearance of Whelan's character's father and his mother's mental breakdown 40 years before. It's strange when your parents die. You start thinking about them differently. How they were to you. The decisions they made. How you are to your own child. Oh, you'll never do what they did. What do you want to do about this place? We could really use the money. And it's creepy. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Yeah, it is. (laughs) I mean... This place was so special to them. Why didn't she want me to know? Thought you would never ask. Let's find out. April 27th, 1946. We have moved in and I am my new self again. None of my dark sadness. Foreshadowing and then exposition arrive at just the right moments in the tank. In fact, fairly continuously. And we're lucky that Whelan and Buchanan are such an appealing couple because they're pretty much all we've got for the first hour or so. Great monster movies know to hold the big reveal back until the right moment. But the tank doesn't do quite enough to get us juiced and ready. The sound design by Nick Buckton does most of the heavy lifting in advance, but I think we could have done with a few more hints to prepare us for what's to come. And when it does arrive, I'm grateful that writer-director Scott Walker insisted on practical monster effects, an actor in a silicon suit, more or less, because we see that so infrequently these days. And also, you can tell that Weta Workshop got really excited about building their own creature from the Black Lagoon for a change, instead of the, the robots and armour that usually take up so much of their time. For a film essentially thrown together quickly once the borders closed after the first lockdown, the tank is pretty effective. New Zealand's film craftspeople are incredibly skilled and resourceful. Our actors, Whelan and Buchanan especially, can hold their own with anyone comparable overseas. And Walker's direction is capable and well supported by editors Martin Brinkler and John Gilbert. Where it does show its weakness is in Walker's script, which is competent to a fault. What I mean to say is, it does all the things a feature script should do, but isn't quite clever enough to hide the workings. It feels like a few more drafts might have added some extra layers, more subtle motivations for Whelan's character perhaps, or some extra peril from the monsters. A little less family history, a little bit more what's going on in the forest. I'm not even sure they've left much of an opportunity there for a sequel. The tank is effective enough and super easy to describe in the 30 or so words you get as people scroll past your title on streaming services. That's where the tank will have a long life. And I have no problem with that at all. What else I found? Oh. Where did you find this? It was in the mud, in the tank. What do you think it is? Well, it's not a fish. It's some sort of amphibious larvae. Not fully formed. Those are its gills. Yeah. See the rare bone spurs? They turn into legs when they move onto land. Look how slimy it is. Like, look. Oh, yeah. 
The tank is rated R13 for bloody violence and horror, and it is playing in select cinemas across the country right now. And that's our program for this week. I'm going to leave you with a song from the soundtrack of The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, written by Sam Lee and James Kay, performed by Sam Lee. This is called McCrimmon. This week's program was written and produced by me, Dan Slevin, and engineered by Phil Benj. Simon Morris returns next week, so I hope you'll make a point of joining him at the same time here on RNZ National. Where England's mist Lifts from her greening A car